You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On June 17th, the Washington Post and the Knight Foundation joined forces for the third annual Free to State Summit on the First Amendment to discuss subjective interpretations of free speech protections when it comes to artistic expression. From trolls to hate speech to misinformation, internet companies have been called upon to set standards for online speech. Tasked with moderating information and, in some cases, removing it in order to ensure safety on and off their platforms, companies have found policing expression and content to be a tricky business. While stemming the flow of violent, offensive content is a priority for many, some lawmakers, like Senator Ted Cruz, sees a pattern of political bias and the censoring of conservative voices. Let's listen. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Tony Rahm. I'm the senior tech policy reporter here at The Washington Post, sitting next to Senator Ted Cruz, who you just heard from. Senator, thank you so much for being here. Tony, thank you for having me. Yeah, and thanks to all of you for being here as well. Just a reminder before we get going uh, that I do have this lovely iPad up here so I can take your questions for those who aren't uh, and are in the audience just by tweeting us at hashtag postlive. Uh, but Senator, thanks again. So sure. let's just dig right into it. Um, the clip that we just yeah. heard uh, was from a hearing that you convened just a few weeks ago talking about this issue of conservative bias in social media. So why don't you just start by walking us through why you had the hearing and what the concern might be? Well, sure. A couple months ago, I chaired a hearing. I chaired the Constitution Subcommittee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then the topic of the hearing was political censorship and bias in, in social media. And, and, and I will tell you, as I've traveled the state of Texas, as I've traveled the country, this is a concern I hear uh, from Texans, from Americans all across this country, that, that uh, the power being amassed in a handful of big tech media companies uh, is, is a level of power really unprecedented in, in, in our political discourse. Um, if you look at the power that, that Google and Facebook and Twitter have, it, it, it is power that, that William Randolph Hearst, at the, at the height of yellow journalism, could never have imagined. We have right now, in terms of the political discussion, roughly 70% of Americans are getting their news from social media. Uh, for young people, uh, roughly 95% are, are going to YouTube regularly. Uh, this is the source of information, and there are consistent patterns being demonstrated uh, of political bias. Now, that being said, the, the, the immediate response is, well, prove it, what's the evidence? And, and, and that actually underscores part of the problem. Uh, there's no transparency whatsoever in terms of the extent of the bias or lack thereof. So at the hearing, for example, we talked about lots of different specific anecdotes. Um, we talked about, for example, I asked Twitter's representative if Twitter considered uh, Mother Teresa uh, to be hate speech. Uh, and I put up a tweet that, that the Susan B. Anthony list had sent out that had a picture of Mother Teresa and a quote from Mother Teresa where she said that, that abortion is profoundly anti-women. And Twitter initially blocked that tweet. They ultimately allowed it to go, but they initially blocked it. Um, and I asked the Twitter representative, is this hate speech? I couldn't get a straight answer. They couldn't answer that definitively. And we've seen instances, for example, Martha Blackburn, when she announced her, her campaign for Senate. Now, she's a sitting member of Congress. She's running for Senate. She obviously got elected to Senate uh, from Tennessee. Twitter blocked her announcement video. Uh, again, on the question of abortion, because presumably they disagreed 
with what she was saying. And what is so pernicious about this, if you have a media outlet that is skewed right or left, you can tell, you can read it and say, okay, I don't agree with these, these folks or the, those folks. What's pernicious about social media is the ability to block things invisibly so that if your view is disfavored, you can put out a post, you can put out a tweet, and it simply fades into the ether and you have no idea how many of your viewers, if any, are seeing what you say. And likewise, uh, the ability to collate your feed so that you only see the input these companies want, I think it's a problem. It is a collection of power over our political discourse that, that to me is deeply troubling. Yeah, we'll unpack some of these specific examples and the evidence that you brought mm -hmm. up there. But I guess if there's one thing that maybe unites Democrats and Republicans right now, it's this feeling that some of these tech companies, some of these social media yeah. companies are black boxes. Absolutely, yes. And, and it was, you know, we saw Mark Zuckerberg come and testify in the Senate, and it was, you know, a joint hearing of Judiciary and Commerce. I serve on both committees, actually, but it was, you know, massive. I think there were like 45 senators, which was a complete mess. Anytime you have 45 <laughs> senators trying to ask questions, it's, it's not going to go well. But, you know, it should have been ominous that of those 40-some-odd senators sitting there, virtually every single senator asking question, both Republican and Democrat, were deeply, deeply skeptical. Um, of the practices of Facebook. That, that, that ought to be a real warning sign that that degree of unaccountable power, you know, we just saw uh, one of Facebook's founders come out and write a long op-ed saying this is too much power uh, and Facebook needs to be broken up. And I do think there's concern across the political spectrum on this. Do you think Facebook should be broken up? I think there's a very good argument for it. Um, you know, as you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren tried to buy ads on Facebook, arguing that Facebook should be broken up uh, under the antitrust laws. And, and Facebook blocked her ads uh, in, in, in what I would say was not exactly an, an, an exercise of, of judgment or wisdom. Um, she tweeted out, um, she said, this is an example of how big tech has too much power. Uh, and I did something I've never done uh, before. I retweeted Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> But let me talk about an area where you all don't agree, which is this issue of uh, political bias, right? There are a lot of Democrats who expressed this concern at the hearing that you chaired a few weeks ago, saying that they thought it was somewhat invented. And even folks on the right have asked this question as to whether there is, in fact, serious evidence of systemic bias at some of these companies, top-to-bottom yeah. bias, seeking to limit the reach of conservatives. Just to read you a quote, um, the Americans for Prosperity, uh, which is definitely not on the left uh, side of things, uh, said that, uh, the claims that some Republicans were making are, quote, not only unfounded, but create a dangerous public narrative. So let me just put it to you. Is there evidence of systemic conservative bias of these companies? Look, I, I will readily concede that, that we are arguing by anecdote. And, and for anyone making public policy, argument by anecdote is, is very unsatisfying. It's not, not the way to do it. But there's a reason we're arguing by anecdote, because nobody has the data other than these big tech companies. So, for example, when I put the Mother Teresa quote, and I put up a whole bunch of examples of Susan B. Anthony pro-life quotes that were, that were put out and, and that Twitter had suppressed, I said, okay, have you ever suppressed anyone on the other side of the, the, the debate? Have you ever suppressed anyone sending a pro-choice tweet? They won't give an answer to that. Um, uh, uh, Blackburn, her, her announcement video, I said, okay, have you ever suppressed any Democratic candidates' announcement video or videos from any Democratic candidate? They won't answer that. Nobody knows. So when Zuckerberg testified, 
Um, I sent some about, I don't know, 640 questions, written questions to Facebook as a follow-up. Somewhere, uh, a whole bunch of law firm associates billed a ton of hours uh, coming out of that hearing. Uh, but I asked all sorts of objective questions. I asked, for example, in 2016, how many posts from Republican office holders did you block? How many posts from Democratic office holders did you block? Now, that's an objective answer. And if the data came out that they blocked 3,205 from Republicans and 2,907 from Democrats, that, those data might actually go towards exonerating them and saying there's not a pattern of, of political bias. If, on the other hand, it turns out it was 10,000 posts from Republicans and three from Democrats, that would raise serious questions. And the maddening thing is the answer that Facebook basically gave to all these questions was go jump in a lake. We're not going to tell you. We're not going to answer. So what do you do from here? What is the next step? So there are a number of things. One of it is focusing on the, the scope of the problem, and that's what that initial hearing was designed to do. That's what I tried to do at, at the Zuckerberg hearing, and it's what we're, we're doing a follow-up hearing with Google. That'll be the, the focus there as well. Specifically with Google? Yes. Um, the remedy, I will readily admit, is complicated. If there is, in fact, a, a pattern of political bias, and listen, Zuckerberg admitted that Silicon Valley is, I, I think his phrase was, overwhelmingly liberal. Um, Facebook said they have 15,000 people engaged in nothing but content review, that they're reviewing content and deciding which posts to allow and which posts to block. Now, that's a, those are a ton of people. So I asked, all right, of these 15,000 people, how many of them have ever contributed to a Democrat? How many of them have ever contributed to a Republican? Those are objective data. If there was anything resembling political balance, those data might exonerate them. They refused to answer that. Um, so what do, you, what do we do about it? That was the question you asked. Um, listen, everyone agrees a federal speech police would be a terrible idea. No one wants to see the federal government engaged in this. But there are at least three potential remedies that I think we should think about. The first concerns Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, under Section 230, big tech companies have a special immunity from liability that nobody else gets. Uh, the Washington Post, if the Washington Post libels someone, the Washington Post can be sued. Big tech companies have an immunity from liability from that same lawsuit that the Washington Post would face. And the reason for that, the predicate, the reason Congress gave that immunity is because these were supposed to be neutral public fora. The reasoning was, look, if these are the posts of, of third parties, it's not fair to sue the social media company for what third parties are saying. Well, what Facebook and Google and Twitter have made very explicit is that they don't intend to be neutral public for it. They are putting their thumb on the scale. They're not being neutral. The CEO of Twitter has said that publicly, that they don't want to be neutral. We saw just recently, for example, YouTube demonetizing uh, conservative comedian Steven Crowder. They said he didn't violate their policies, but they were going to demonetize him anyway. Um, it strikes me that if they're going to be partisan gatekeepers, that there's no reason that, that the big tech media company should have a special immunity from liability. Nobody else does. Well, let me just stop you there for a second, sure. since you brought up Steven Crowder, because that's been in the news quite a lot yeah. recently. 
Um, so you don't think that YouTube should have taken ac ad, uh, action against Crowder? Absolutely not. I mean, just to give folks here a sense as to what had happened with Crowder, uh, Crowder was, you know, was a comedian uh, and also a conservative pundit. Uh, he was attacking a Vox reporter and at times had called him, quote, an angry little queer, quote, Mr. Gay Vox. At one point, uh, you know, he was wearing a shirt that said socialism is for a, you know, a homophobic epithet. Uh, you think that that should have been allowed to stay on YouTube? Look, insults are included in free speech. And if someone doesn't like what someone is saying, the response is respond to them and push back. Uh, let me give an example much more extreme but, than but, that. But, 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 but just to be clear on Crowder, this was an example where the reporter who had been on the receiving end of this had pointed out pretty publicly on Twitter that he had been the victim of harassment, uh, he had been a victim of threats. There was Look, a very clear link between what had been written online with the threat of real-world violence offline. So. Is that an area no, 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 hold on a second. Hold, there, there was no indication of real-world violence. YouTube explicitly found what Crowder had said didn't violate their policies. Now, look, as I understand it, did Crowder insult him and, you, and have some epithets? Yes, but you know what? Look, the, the public square, if you go on to my Twitter page right now, pick any random tweet. I could tweet about the weather outside, and I guarantee you there are a bunch of commentators uh, telling me that to do things that are anatomically impossible, <laughs> um, having all sorts of insults, and you know what? They're protected. They have a right to do that. And, and free speech, you know, can be messy and ugly. I'll, I'll give you one of the classic examples, the Nazis. Nazis are ignorant, bigoted, racist morons. And yet the Supreme Court rightly said they have a right to march in Skokie, Illinois. The answer to their stupidity is not to silence them and say you're not allowed to speak. The answer is for us to speak up and say that is ignorant and bigoted and, and, and racist and moronic. So if, if, this, uh, if, if this reporter didn't like what Crowder's saying, engage with him. Engage with him on substance. Don't call on YouTube just to silence the speech. And, and for that much power, who in their right mind would want our political discourse controlled by a handful of Silicon Valley billionaires. But, but what, what if it does lead to violence? We've seen time and again where the things that people post online don't stay online. The most extreme example I can think of recently, unfortunately, was the shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue there. This was something that had been posted online by the attacker, attacking people of the Jewish, Jewish faith and then carrying out violence as a result of that. So what happens in this case if it results in violence? Look, I, I, I think that's, that's a false analogy. And so if you have videos of mass murders, videos of violence are, are a different beast. And it, it routinely is the case that snuff films are not aired, that airs of, of, of airings of murders are not aired. That's very different from saying that, that, all right, let's take, for example, should the Communist Manifesto be banned? You want to talk about something that has led to violence. Billions have suffered as a result of the Communist Manifesto. My family in Cuba, my Tia Sonia, was imprisoned and tortured by Fidel Castro's communist government. And yet, I'll give you the answer to that. Hell no, the Communist Manifesto shouldn't be censored. It shouldn't be silenced. We should engage with those ideas. If we're suddenly in the business of saying some ideas are too dangerous to be heard, that is, that way lies madness. But attacks on people on the basis of their sexuality or ethnicity on a site like YouTube or Facebook should be protected. Uh, they should be allowed to do those things. So for, ex all right, so, so the broad rubric hate speech is used, so for example, some of the questions I asked, uh, I asked Facebook, are the following statements hate speech? Is the statement marriage is the union of one man and one woman, is that hate speech? Should that be silenced? 
Now, you may disagree with it, but, but is that a view that must be silenced from the public square? Is the statement there are two genders, men and women? Is that hate speech? All of those questions, by the way, Facebook refused to answer. They won't say if, uh, you know, I asked Twitter and Facebook if someone quotes verbatim from the Torah, from the Bible or the Koran, says nothing else but simply quotes from, from, from one, of those, one of those sources, is that hate speech? Would that be censored? They won't answer. And, and I think that's a very dangerous world. If you disagree with a public policy position, look, there are all sorts of positions I disagree with, and I'm not trying to silence the people who say it. The way to do it, John Stuart Mill said, the best cure for bad speech is more speech. If you disagree with someone sa saying, don't silence them, engage on the merits. But how do you view hate speech? What would you do about these things? I think people should be allowed to debate and debate freely. And by the way, there's a check. If you repeal Section 230, there's a check on libel or slander. So, for example, if I wrongly, wrongfully impugn you and accuse you of being a felon and you are not, in fact, a felon, you can sue me and you can get, collect damages. That actually, that there are checks in the public square. Um, you know, what, what prevents the Washington Post uh, from any given day publishing views that are not just, well, we have a liability system. We have, what's different about big tech, though, is that it's invisible. So nobody knows, nobody knows, for example, well, what's even more dangerous. So we have examples of blocking. But we don't know, for example, if I tweet something right now, I've got, I think, I don't know, three, four million followers on Facebook Many more than I do. I have no idea if I tweet something, what percentage of my followers actually see what I say. I don't know if it's 100%, 90, 2, 0, 0 point, I mean, no idea, no measure, no, and no accountability. Let me give you another example yeah, of I mean, question. Folks, oh, folks understand the black box argument. What I'm trying to get at is where the line should be. Okay. At what point can a company step in and say something that somebody has posted, a video, a tweet, otherwise, is causing or threatens to cause them harm, they can take that sort of thing down and they won't take a whole lot of political heat for having done You know, so. the beauty of it is we, we have a common law system that has existed for years, so a direct threat of violence can be called down. If, 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 if somebody calls, go assault so-and-so, go murder so-and-so, those, those, th that can be criminal conduct. Um, that's different from an insult. So unless it's criminal, you think it should stay up online? I think we should, number one, err in favor of free speech. But I think, number two, there should be transparency. Let me give you another example. Here are questions Facebook and Twitter refused to answer. I asked, what was the average ad rate Facebook charged the Romney campaign in 2012 and the Obama campaign in 2012? As far as I know, nobody knows the answer to that. Now, if they were roughly comparable, okay. Would it trouble anyone if the Romney campaign were charged twice as much, three times as much, 10 times as much. Or by the way, on the flip side, suppose Facebook were to decide we like Republicans. By the way, NBC couldn't do that. They couldn't say we'll run Republican ads for free, but we, we won't run Democratic ads. There's absolutely zero accountability on the political bias of these companies. And they simply say, trust us. And even if you agree with their politics, that kind of unchecked power should trouble you.
Yeah, speaking of the election, let's actually turn to something that happened, another thing that happened a few weeks ago, which is this fake video of uh, Speaker Pelosi that had circulated online. Uh, for those who maybe missed the story, this was a very heavily doctored video of the speaker that was slowed down to make her look like she was inebriated when she was speaking. And so it proliferated, some sites took it down, Facebook ultimately chose to leave it up. Should they have left it up? Look, at the end of the day, I don't know. As I understand it, there was some private citizen who did this who had his uh, identity revealed by reporters, and, and he was subject to a lot of harassment. Listen, at the end of the day, free speech is messy. I, I mean, the, the attacks... All right. I, 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 I... You don't know if the video should have been taken down. Look, if something is fraudulent, uh, I think that is a valid basis for taking, taking something down. If, if, it is, if it is deliberate fraud and it's not clearly satire. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference between fraud and not liking what's being said. And, th and there's a great deal of, of, of subjective decision making with no transparency in terms of what's happening. To your point about fraud and knowing things are falsehoods and taking them down, how then do you address something like Alex Jones? Uh, this is somebody who very publicly was posting conspiracy theories about uh, quite a good number of things, including the shooting at Sandy Hook. Uh, at times, it appeared like you had been defending his ability to say that. So let's just start with the basics. What are your thoughts on Alex Jones? Should he have been able to continue to do these things online? Um, I think, listen, I think Alex jo Jones is a nut. I don't listen to the guy. I don't know what he has to say. Um, but I also don't like that a handful of Silicon Valley billionaires suddenly decided this voice shall be silenced. We, the Star Chamber, have spoken, and his listeners have no right to hear him. Now, part of the reason I spoke out in support of Alex Jones is because he's been a son of a bitch to me. <laughs> the guy goes on air and routinely accuses my father of killing J John F. Kennedy. <laughs> for the record, he didn't do it, but my dad did take out Jimmy Hoffa. I apologize for that. <laughs> Um, I, look, I, to be honest, I don't like crackpots that accuse my father of murder. That's why I defended his First Amendment rights. Because the First Amendment is about letting people speak and letting the marketplace of ideas decide. It's precisely because I was defending someone who comes after me. Uh, to illustrate, this is not about my particular policy views being favored. This is about... And it used to be, by the way, journalists used to be vigorous in protecting free speech. It's really striking. How many journalists are perfectly fine with the massive power big tech has to censor views? And it may be because the views they're suppressing journalists disagree with. So if they're suppressing pro-life views, look, most journalists are not pro-life, so what skin is it off my nose? Well, I think that's a very dangerous power to hand over if you suddenly have two or three billionaires deciding what speech is allowed, what speech is not, and it's all invisible. But Senator, this was an example of somebody who has a very large following that had been enabled in some ways by the social media platforms that later banned him to spread those falsehoods. You don't think that those companies have a responsibility to sort of limit the spread of that if they can? Well, look, I, I will note, by the way, because I guess as I understand it, he has a radio show, he's facing uh, slander and libel Litigation, and so you do have a legal system. Uh, you know, if, if if he's spreading slanders and libels, look. In my instance, he certainly is. In my instance, but but you know, and, and I will confess, my, my my father contemplated filing a lawsuit, but I, I told him, uh, you, you know, the old line, uh, 
never roll around in the mud with a pig because you'll get covered in mud and the pig likes it. Right. Um, that frankly was my advice to my dad, just don't mess with this guy. But we do have a legal system that provides a remedy for that. And the one group that is magically immune from that are the big tech companies. I guess the question I'm getting at though is that we find ourselves in a situation in which experts and other lawmakers fear that social media has just become this ecosystem for falsehoods. And you have people like Alex Jones who occasionally use those channels to spread some of those falsehoods. The companies then go to take action against that and then they're criticized for having done so. So how do we, how do we address that? But, but, but the action is, is, seems to be consistently patterned on one side. For example, uh, YouTube demonetized my old uh, law professor, Alan Dershowitz, hardly a man of the right, uh, for a video he did on Israel, and they decided to de demonetize him because they disagreed with him. Who the hell are they to be deciding this? To, the right way to resolve these issues is through the forum of public debate. The right, that's the right way that respects the right of the people. And look, some old school journalistic rules there are checks if any one newspaper or any one, one station gets too extreme. There are a bunch of other stations. What is dangerous about these social media companies is they are in many respects monopolies. So, so that Twitter and Facebook are where people get their political news and that there's not really another viable alternative for a great many people. They have monopoly powers. The Washington Post and New York Times have never imagined having YouTube. We don't know what the algorithm is, but, but you know, if they decide, all right, there are outcomes we want, political outcomes we want, and we're going to use our monopoly status in the, in the search market to favor all the political outcomes we want and to disfavor the ones we don't, that power ought to be deeply disturbing, and, and it is to a lot of people. But absent some of these rules, do you fear that we find ourselves in a place in which the 2020 election could just be a breeding ground for falsehoods in social media? I mean, it sort of sounds, and for, correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like you would prefer it if they didn't really have some of these content moderation rules at all. I would prefer it if they let people speak. And, and you know what? You're saying politics is a breeding ground for falsehoods. Now there's news. Well, I'm saying social media is a pretty social media is a breeding ground for falsehoods. Go back and read the political campaigns we had of our first few presidents, the founding fathers, the aspersions. Look, politics has always been, uh, you know, a, a a a tough business. There's a, the old line: it ain't beanbag. And and the answer is not to sudden, suddenly sanitize it and say, no, 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 don't criticize, don't say things we don't like. Um, by the way, the First Amendment was not designed for popular views. Popular views, whatever is popular, doesn't need the First Amendment because you've got popular support. The First Amendment was designed for unpopular views. And unpopular views sometimes are wrong, sometimes are right. But how do you want to answer that? Do you want a handful of billionaires making those decisions or do you want the public square debates, the merits, the ideas making those, and, and even scurrilous lies. The best way to respond to scurrilous lies is address them and shine light on them. Don't, don't simply try to silence anything you disagree with. But we've never had a moment in time like now, right, where somebody can post one tweet on Twitter and that thing can go viral and can, it could occupy conversation for weeks to follow, right? And I guess the question I'm trying to get at is, with the power and the reach of social media, 
what rules should there be in place at all? It, it just feels to me like you don't think that there should be any sorts of guardrails on these companies uh, within the companies with respect to like the rules that they uh, apply to what should be allowed and what shouldn't be. Uh, look, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom. But we're talking about the companies, not Congress. Uh, I understand uh, Congress. Uh, but hold on, the First Amendment means something. And by the way, most of the world doesn't embrace the First Amendment. What we have in the United States is, is wonderful and special and unique that the government doesn't engage, it doesn't get, engage in prior restraint, it doesn't engage in censorship, even obnoxious anti-government views. A whole lot of the world, you go to China and try to, try to explain the oppression of the communist government, you go to China and talk about the Dalai Lama, see, see what happens there. Much of the globe you are not allowed to express dissenting views. And, you know, even your example, gosh, we live in a world where one person can send a tweet and can ricochet around the world. Wonderful. What a wonderful democratization of views. By the way, we've seen revolutions fueled by that. As, as protesters send around tweets, one of the, what, what's one of the first things that tyrannies try to do if, if they have the people engaging in unrest, whether it is Iran, whether, whether it is China or elsewhere, silence social media. Don't let them speak. You know, we've got 7 billion people on planet Earth. Let all 7 billion speak. Right, but we've also seen social media be used for genocide in Myanmar. We've seen social, social media become weaponized by Russian agents who want to spread disinformation during the 2016 election. It just sort of feels like these companies don't have those guardrails in place, and they aren't the ones enforcing them that we're asking for some of these bad things to happen. Look, when you're dealing with outright fraud by, by nation states and governments, I think that you can certainly take steps to deal with that, fraudulent accounts of people who don't exist. But many of these examples that we've looked at are real people we know exist, they're expressing views, they just don't have to happen to be the politically favored views by the censors. Um, a lot of this debate is, is red herrings. Well, what about what about the Russians? You know, what, what about Americans who we know are Americans who are expressing views? We should not be silencing the views of Americans who, who are expressing their thoughts. Let's talk a little bit about the regulatory side of things. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned antitrust a little yeah. bit. Uh, the conversation in Washington right now is that the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission have split up yep. oversight of some of the big tech companies. What would you like to see the FTC and the DOJ do here in the space? So listen, I'm glad the public reporting has been that, that DOJ is looking at Google, that the FTC is looking at Facebook. I'm glad that they are. Uh, by any measure, those companies are larger. They have more market power. Uh, than Standard Oil did when it was broken up under the antitrust laws. They're larger and have more market power than AT&T did when it was broken up under the antitrust laws. And in particular, if one is using a monopoly to engage in politically biased censorship, I think there's a very good argument that that runs afoul of the antitrust laws. And now look, is it complicated? Yes. Is that a different manifestation then the Sherman Act was, was adopted to, 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 to address unquestionably, but it was adopted to address the abuse of monopoly power. And, and the abuse of monopoly power has different manifestations in, in different times and eras. And so what Standard Oil is doing is different from what Google's doing, but both enjoyed massive monopoly power and were using it uh, in ways that, that, that were contrary to law. By the way, there's a third potential um, Avenue, which is, which is uh, for remedy, and it's one that sounds in either fraud or breach of contract, and, 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 and framed really simply. It's the typical user on Twitter or, or Facebook. If you sign up, you assume 
that if you follow somebody, you're going to see what they tweet. You're going to see what they post. If somebody follows you, they're going to see what you tweet or you post. That's the, that's the implied contract the users have. What is really pernicious is the practice of shadow banning. Shadow banning is where, where these social media companies simply shrink the number of people that hear a post, and they do it silently so that nobody knows it's happened. Now, there have been whistleblowers from Twitter who have alleged this. Actually, the... The company, to be clear, has said it does not engage in this practice. It did, and then in the same breath, the, the, the witness said at the hearing, does Twitter restrict the number of viewers on some posts, shrink the number of viewers? Answer, yes. Do you tell the people posting you've shrunk the number of viewers are getting their, their post? Answer, no. Well, that is shadow banning. So, yes, they, they said the, 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 the top-line headline, we don't engage in shadow banning, and then they admitted to the exact conduct at issue. And, and, and that, the, the throttling... So I've met with multiple officials throughout the administration seeking at, at the first step just some basic transparency. Just provide the data of what's going on. How many people are being blocked? By the way, they have these data. These are not hard to find out. These are objective data. So how many tweets did Twitter block last year? They know and nobody else in this room knows. And I will say it, it, it is a little bit concerning that, that not many in the media seem worried about that. Um, you know, it, it used to be that journalists like the idea of speaking truth to power. Well, there's a whole lot of power right now. And, and you don't get a lot of journalists speaking out. I don't know of any journalist that I saw that spoke out in favor of Alex Jones. Now, look, he's, he's a kook, but, but, you know, but then let's go to Steven Crowder, who's less kooky than Jones. You didn't see a lot of people speaking out for him. And, and I think some of it is with journalists, they say, well, gosh, you know, I don't agree with those guys, so I'm okay with their being silenced. Uh, that's a very dangerous, slippery slope. I don't speak for journalists or profess to speak for journalists, but I think the question was why folks like that can attack and spread falsehoods and seem to get away with it in these social media platforms, which is sort of the heart of our conversation. But, but insults and attacks? That threatened the families of a shooting, but, but, that threatened but, but, the but, 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 but Look, there's no allegation that, that Steven Crowder threatened anybody. That's not, that's not an allegation. YouTube explicitly concluded, you did not violate our policies, but we're demonetizing you anyway. By the way, how's that for a de Orwellian term? You are demonetized. You know, think about that from your job. If your boss calls you and, hey, today I'm demonetizing you. That starts to reflect the kind of power uh, that these companies have. And by the way, these companies also have for the traffic to the Washington Post and everybody else. Should Google be broken up? I think there's a very good argument for it. Um, you know, how you do it is complicated. I'm, I'm not purporting uh, to have the answers on the remedy. I am saying this is a serious problem, and, and we should understand just how widespread it is. And so the first step, um, you know, look, I would encourage folks who are interested, take a look at the questions that I asked Facebook. I mean, it was over 600 questions that were detailed questions about how many people have you blocked? In what circumstances do you block? Which statements are deemed objectionable? 
and they don't answer it, which means there are no objective standards other than just unchecked and unregulated power. You talked a little bit about Section 230. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you plan to proceed on Section 230? Um, look, the next step is we're, we're going to be shortly holding the hearing on Google. I, I expect that to be the next step. Um, and, and then we'll move forward. I think there are a number of legislators. I've had uh, conversations with a number of senators, both Republican and Democrat, who are concerned about this and who are looking at different levers to address uh, political censorship. And, I, and so I expect to, to continue working, working creatively to address it. Uh, to talk a little bit about, um, you know, abroad, sorry, they're talking to my ear. Yeah. Abroad, uh, there have been lots of uh, countries that have looked to regulate uh, not so much speech, but the way that the companies deal with that speech. Uh, after the Christchurch shooting, for example, in New Zealand, uh, we saw a number of countries consider whether to impose fines or things on companies that don't take down troubling, alarmist, violent, falsehoods, things of that sort fast enough. Should the U.S. consider such a thing? No, we shouldn't have the government. Um, look, there are lots of countries that have a long tradition antithetical to the First Amendment. Um, we shouldn't have the government silencing views. Um, the right response to hate speech is responding with truth. Uh, you take another example, the Klan. The Klan and white supremacists are idiots. And I have to point out some of that. I remember, the, I don't know, some Klan moron or something that was saying something, and I said so pretty loudly. And I remember there was one, I think it was a New York Times reporter, who said both, both uh, uh, Marco Rubio and I both criticized whoever this, I, I forget the circumstances, but it was some Klan something or other. And, and this New York Times reporter said, uh, Ah, Cruz and Rubio are positioning for the 2020 campaign. And, and I couldn't help but, but tweet back, and I said, yeah, it's got to be political positioning because, you know, the Klan has such love for Cuban-Americans. You know, that, the response to bigotry and hatred is, in, is, is not silencing, it is not treating it, that's a response of weakness, that's a response of fear. The response to it is is speaking the truth to it but that stuff often tends to drown out the truth that you're talking about does it which it, it appears to be the case in social media Do you know so it's your said? view the Klan is drowning out the truth in America today that's not what I said senator you said those views tend to drown out the truth no the Klan's views are idiotic and I think the overwhelming supermajority of Americans recognize that that's an example of stupid bigoted views being responded to with truth and being repudiated. But you think good speech will always win out in the absence of strong rules by these social media? I think it is the best check, and I, I trust it more than I trust authoritarian uh, power brokers, whether it is the government censoring or a handful of Silicon Valley billionaires. Look, no system is perfect, but the marketplace of ideas, the ability to contest ideas is... is much better than, you know, Winston Churchill uh, famously said, democracy is the worst form of government known to man, except for every other. Uh, the same is true on free speech. Look, free speech is not perfect. Some bad things will get said, but it's much better than empowering anybody to be a dictator over what's allowed to be spoken. On that note, we'll have to wrap, Senator. We can go for another hour or so, but uh, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Thanks so much to everybody for coming and for joining our third annual Free to State program. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, 
visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.